If you would, uh, go with me to uh, Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to take a look at verses 11 through 13 today. And as you turn there, I just want to let you know next week we begin a brand new series entitled Come to Worship. We're going to take four weeks and look at four different postures of worship. And we're going to see that worship has very little to do with the type or style of music that we sing. But it's an expression of our heart and our lives to God. And that we worship God because of what He's done for us in Jesus. And if our worship is based on anything else than who He is and what He's done in Jesus, we're missing it. And so we're going to take an opportunity to look at, uh, at those different postures of worship over four weeks because I really believe God's called us to be a church that just worships Him because of who He is and what He's done in Jesus. So, Ephesians, everybody there? This is a letter that Paul wrote to a church in the city of Ephesus. He planted this church, so he started the work. Ephesus was a very important city back in those days, very wealthy, a center of trade and, and culture. He starts this church, it starts to grow. He turns it over to a young man named Timothy, and then he writes this letter to them. It's a letter of encouragement, it's a letter of caution and challenge, and even some correction. And, and I believe the few verses we're going to read today is one of those, those points of uh, encouragement, but also challenge and laying out for the church how they're really to function, because this is the first church, right? These are the first century believers. Jesus has just been resurrected not so long ago. He's in heaven, and now they're trying to figure this whole thing out, and Paul lays some things out for them. So let's read these few verses. It says, now these are the gifts that Christ gave to the church, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the pastors and teachers. It says, their responsibility is to equip God's people to do his work and build up the church, the body of Christ. So this will continue until we all come to such unity in our faith and knowledge of God's Son that we will be mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much again for the opportunity to be here as we're here because we want to be, not because we have to be. I pray that as we go through this today and the moments that we have together, may you just Open up our understanding so that we can see the person of Jesus in our lives. And that when we walk out of here today, I pray that we wouldn't walk out having just accomplished a checklist or something that we do in our walk with you. But may we walk out of here different, knowing that eternity was impacted today because we were transformed. And ask your Holy Spirit just to help me speak this message clearly, effectively, and quickly. Anybody said? Amen. Amen. Anybody in here a coach? Like you coached a team? Right? You ever coached a Little League team? We have very few coaches. That's probably, I understand. I coached Little League one time. But anybody ever been on a team? Okay, there we go. Thank you. Yeah, been on a team. You did something that involved uh, uh, playing with some other people, being part of a group that required a coach. I was thinking about coaches this past week and remembering some of the coaches that I had. And I was thinking about coaches. They're kind of a peculiar bunch, aren't they? I mean, you really think about if you played sports and especially like a contact sport in some way, the coaches are a little more intense than maybe some other types of sporting events. Uh, I remember that the coaches, sometimes they say and do things that outside the context of practice or coaching or the sport may seem a little socially inappropriate, right? And they say things and do things that if your mama saw, she probably wouldn't approve of. Remember, I had a coach playing football, 9 or 10 years old, uh, getting ready before the last game of the season. It was kind of a championship game, and, and we were doing this drill. I was a lineman. That means that I just blocked people. Nobody ever saw me. Didn't get to touch the ball. 
And we're just doing this drill. We had to get in your stance. They snap the ball, and you have to take your first couple steps. And the goal is you got to stay low, right? you got to stay low because if you stand straight up in football, you're going to end up on your back. you got to stay low. And that was the purpose of the drill. We've been doing it. And there was one guy on the end that kept standing straight up every time the ball was snapped. He'd just stand straight up. Coach said, son, you need to stay low. Stay low. How many times have we gone over this? Stay low. So about after the fourth or fifth time that he does that, the coach says, son, you stand up again, I'm going to punch you right in the stomach. And uh, obviously he never would have done that, but can you imagine if this day and age, I mean, that was like, I don't know, I'm 30, so at least 20 years ago, if someone would do that today, we'd say, that guy's probably never going to coach again. But coaches are a peculiar bunch. Why do they say the things they do? Why do they make you run and condition and stay longer than you want to stay? I don't know about you, but some of the coaches that I had, I hated in practice. Absolutely. I'd like, please get me out of here. If I have to run another lap, if I have to run another sprint, I had coaches that made us ran, run until we almost got sick. And then you took your helmet off because you're going to get sick. Coach said, son, I tell you to take your helmet off. No, sir. I'll put it back on, get sick through my helmet. But I had some great coaches. I really did. One coach in particular had a profound impact on my life. Outside of my parents and, and some youth pastors and other people, this coach had, had such a profound impact on my life. To this day, when I see him, I still call him coach, and he's assistant superintendent of the district. I call him coach. He, he cared almost about as much as about us as I think he did winning, or maybe even more. He was interested in building people. He was interested in, in building us as, as young men and equipping us. And he made us do things that I I did not like at all, especially during wrestling practice. He pushed us to the brink of our capacity. He would tell us things like, your mind is telling you to quit, but your body is saying, keep going. And I'm like, that ain't true at all, coach. My whole, I just want to quit, ready to give up. And he would say, keep going, keep going, keep going. And you thought you were going to die, but you could keep going, keep going, and keep going. And you're like, get me out of this practice. I think this man takes pleasure in my pain. But it wasn't until game time or till the wrestling meet when you got in there for those six minutes, three periods of two minutes, and it came time to execute that you found within yourself the ability to execute everything that you'd been equipped with. Where you're like, I appreciate the coach. He's a good, he's a good guy. He, he pushed me. He equipped me so that I could execute when the time came. When everything was on the line, I could execute because of his equipping because he believed in me, because he, he, he pushed me. It was, his name's Coach Rizzi. It was Coach Rizzi's voice in my head as I ran that half marathon that we've talked so much about, that I'm ready to quit, and I hear that voice. Earls, your mind's telling you to quit, but your body's telling you to keep going. And I'm like, I don't believe that, but it's true. And I kept going. I could hear that inspiration and that pushing. I, I think that coaches... Although peculiar, although do things that sometimes we don't agree with, although make us do things that in the moment we don't like, are so essential, right? I don't think the coaches are more important than the, t- the players. I think they share a level of equal importance and value, but one of them cannot be successful without the other. Imagine this. Imagine you go to a sporting event today of some sort. You go, you sit in the stands. You look down at the playing field, whether it's a football field, a basketball court, a wrestling mat, a soccer field, or any other sport that I didn't mention that you play or your kids play. 
And you see that there's the coaches are there. The, the water is there. The Gatorade is there. The equipment's there. But you look to your left and your right. And you see that the team is sitting next to you in the stands. You begin to think to yourself, I mean, the coaches are there. The team is right here. You're thinking, this, this can't be a game. Right? Nothing's going to happen. And you turn to the team and you say, why aren't you on the field? Why aren't you getting ready to play? And the team says, well, we just kind of thought, you know, it's the coach's responsibility. Right? I mean, he, he, he or she, they do everything. So we just, we just want to watch. We just said, inside, instead of being a participant, we'd rather just be a spectator. We're just going to watch and see what happens. We're just going to let the coaches go at it. Right? Just watch coaches coach. It's like some, watching someone play chess. And you very quickly begin to realize that, number one, Josh, this, re- this example and analogy is breaking down very fast. Because no one would ever do that, right? You're right. That would be ridiculous. We wouldn't go and pay money to a sporting event to sit next to the team in the stands while the coaches stand on the field for however many quarters or periods that is the duration of the event. But the reality is, is I think that what we've done in church, what we've turned Christianity into, is this spectator sport. Where we just think the coaches are going to do all the work. And I'm not here to cast blame. I'm not here to point fingers. I'm just saying, I think we've created an environment. I think the leadership of the church in general has been responsible in some sort of creating this sport where... Everybody shows up, the coaches are on the field, meaning the leadership of the church, and the team's sitting in a stand saying, it's their responsibility. We're just going to watch. We're just going to see what happens. I think leadership, pastors, these people that we read about, I think that unfortunately somewhere along the way, we took way too much responsibility, I'm one of them now, and said, we'll do all the work, we just want you to come, and if you could, just kind of, Give us some money every once in a while so we can keep doing it. And just watch us. We'll equip. We'll execute. We'll do everything. And we created a beautiful culture of, of spectating. I'm not saying that the church isn't doing work, but I'm just saying I think that we have taken the Great Commission. This mandate and directive that Jesus gave right before he was resurrected to go into all the world and preach the gospel and make disciples and baptize. and We've taken that and we said... This directive, this mandate, this is the responsibility of those who call themselves pastors and teachers and evangelists and prophets and apostles. It's their mandate. Everyone else would just, would just kind of spectate. And again, for me, there's no guilt, there's no condemnation. It's just looking at what is. Last year in September, Lauren and Carson and I went on a vacation I've been a pastor all of about two and a half months, so I knew everything, right? We're on this boat in the middle of the ocean, and I'm reading, reading through a book, and the book mentions a passage of Scripture, and it's this passage of Scripture, and I open up to it, and I read it, and God really just began to speak to my heart, and something just jumped out of the page and hit me kind of right in the gut. It's kind of like what that coach said. I've been standing up, and boom. And I read this passage, 11 through 13. When the first sentence said, now, Christ gave these gifts to the church. Gifts. Apostle. What's an apostle? Like Paul, he was an apostle. Traveled around, started a bunch of work. A prophet. An evangelist. One who travels and preaches the gospel. 
a pastor and a teacher, and those are kind of one and the same. Those are gifts to the church. And then the following statement said this, and their job is to equip the saints or prepare the people to do the work of the ministry. It hit me like a ton of bricks, like, my job as a pastor isn't to do everything? That my job is to, like a coach, to equip people? I read it, and, and it didn't seem like it was a suggestion. It wasn't an optional thing. This was like God was speaking to me and saying, this is your mandate, is to equip. Because if there's one thing that I understand, it's coaches equip and players execute. Does that mean coaches don't do anything? Not at all. Does that mean the coaches are greater than the players? No. Is a pastor greater than someone who's not a pastor? Not at all. We just have different gifting sets, right? We have different, we have different uh, talents and abilities that God has given us. I think somewhere along the line, we elevated these four or five positions to a place that God never meant, where we come and watch. I mean, it's kind of interesting. Look, look at the way that the platform is set up to you. I'm standing on an elevated platform, and in old church, it would just be a flat thing all the way back to the door, right? Where all the people on the stage were higher than those that were sitting. And although I don't think there was ever an intention or underlying thing there, I think we through the years, elevated something that was never meant to be elevated. It's like when you went to school, what did the teachers do? They equipped you so you could go on in life and do what it is that you were called to do, that you were gifted to do, that you were talented to do. But in the church, for some reason, we created this backseat kind of culture. And in light of everything that we've been experiencing in our country... I was not planning on addressing anything, but I just kind of began to think, in light of what we experienced, especially in the past few days, I mean, if you've been on Facebook, it's ridiculous, right? I mean, you know, on one hand, we're going to, like, drop off in the sea tomorrow, and on the other hand, nothing's wrong and everything's great. So if we're getting our truth and our, and our inspiration from Facebook, I'm just going to ask you to take a pause from that, because it's exhausting to me. I, when I heard of, of all the things that were going on, I'd already been preparing this message for a couple weeks. You know what my response was? Was I disappointed? Yeah. Is it a bummer? Yeah. Is it what we agree with? No. Did our responsibility change? Not at all. Is God still on the throne? You better believe it. Is Jesus still seated at the right hand of the Father? Uh Uh-huh. Is he ever seen the righteous forsaken and the seed beg for bread? Not at all. I mean, come on. It's time to celebrate. God's not in heaven back in the corner thinking, what in the world am I going to do now? I got to change it up. Jesus, I don't know if this is going to work, man. You went to the cross and everything, and you set people free, and you conquered sin. You conquered death. You conquered the grave. You're the hope of the world. You're the rose of Sharon, the lion of Judah. You're everything that I planned for from the beginning. I don't know if this is going to work. That's not what God is doing. God created you and me and sent Jesus. Christ gave gifts to the church. You're a gift to the world so that we could come and be equipped and go into the world. And no matter what we face, no matter what comes at us, we can say, we have the answer. We're not going to shrink back. We're not going to put our heads in the sand. We're not going to try to make statements of what's going to happen because we don't know. We're just going to do what Jesus told us to do and that's preach the gospel. That's make disciples. That's baptize people. That's stand on the corner and say, we have a message of hope and transformation. Come one, come all. Because we got the answer. Yeah. 
And I wanted to let you know this morning that we are going to be a church that is about equipping and about executing. That it's going to be pretty hard for someone to come in here and sit for a long time and just be a spectator because we're not a spectating church. We are a church that gets in the game. We play the game. We don't spectate on the world and comment on the world and get upset when sinners sin and people who disagree with us do things that we don't agree with. No, we're not going to sit back and speculate and spectate and postulate. We're just going to do what Jesus called us to do. We're not going to compromise. We're not going to bend truth and make it seem pretty. We're going to say, hey, this is the truth. We present it in love and we just believe the gospel works best when the gospel does the work. The gospel is not, has not become ineffective or irrelevant. I believe it is the most relevant, effective, timely message on the face of the earth. It is our only hope. If everything that we have and everything that we believe in and everything that valiant men and women have fought for and died for throughout the years, if all of that fades away, we have to begin to answer the question, what is it that we have? What is our hope rooted in? Is Jesus the anchor of my soul? Or is the fact that I'm an American citizen the anchor of my soul? I love this country. I wouldn't want to go anywhere else. But the anchor of my soul is not my affiliation with a particular country. It is Jesus Christ himself. He's the only thing that will never pass away. Heaven and earth shall pass away. My word will not pass away. It's about being equipped. To do the work. I think that when we're ill-equipped, we can't execute, number one. Now, I told you I had some good coaches. I had some bad coaches, too. They didn't equip us. We couldn't execute. And that's why three years playing football, we were 3-27. and 27. One of those years, we were 0-10. and 10. Like, we didn't win. Ever. We weren't equipped to execute. You can't play the game when you're not equipped. You can't can't do what it is that you were called and gifted and talented to do when you aren't equipped. When you're not in the game. You say, well, I played sports growing up and I was just on the sidelines. Even being on the sidelines, you're not a spectator, you're a participant. Because at any moment, you're going to be put in the game. Right? At any moment, you could be like Rudy. Right? Where you're just put in the game and you've got to do what it is you were tasked to do. This is what Paul is telling Timothy in this church at Ephesus. Yeah, Timothy may be your pastor. I was, I was the guy that started the church. You got some people who travel and preach. You got some people who, who can speak these amazing truths from God in a prophetic way, but they're just gifts. They're to be used. They're to equip you. Because the Great Commission, right? It's a shared burden. It's a shared calling. It's not the calling of a select, exclu- a select exclusive group. The moment that you said, I believe in Jesus, is the moment that, that that mandate, that directive became active in your life. And we have to be equipped to do that. Paul says that there are going to be three things that really happen when you do this. Number one, he said, when you begin to equip, which back up, the word equip literally means to be put right with. They, they use that word to talk about when bones were set back in place, a broken bone, to equip, to be set right, to be set as it ought to be, how it was created and, and made to be. So when you begin to do that, 
He says the body of Christ will be built up. That word built up literally means like a building will be built up. It will grow and be built and become strong. Who's the body of Christ? Me and you and every believer around the world. We're all the body of Christ. All unified in that. We'll be built up and made strong as we are equipped together. The second thing is is this, is that we will grow in unity in two areas. Unity in our faith and unity in the knowledge of who Jesus Christ is. As we are equipped, we basically, we we begin to know who Jesus Christ is. The faith that was given to us by the Holy Spirit. To believe in Jesus. We grow in that understanding, we become unified in that. And then we grow in our understanding of who Jesus is. And what he wants to do in this world. I'm convinced that a majority of believers are so disconnected from the purpose of Jesus that they can't look at the world in the way in which he would look at the world today. We have to see the world and all of its issues and all of its problems through the finished work of Jesus Christ. Yeah, we can disagree. Yes, we can be disappointed. Yes, we may even feel a little anger. But at the end of the day, we're called to impact and save the world, not reject and push it away to the point where we don't want nothing to do with it. We are in the world. We need to stop trying to get out of the world. Yes, I know the Bible says be in the world, but not of the world. Don't do what the world does, but stop trying to run away from it. We're here to change it, right? The Bible says that we are ambassadors. We represent God on earth. We're here to make some change. We're here to preach the gospel. We're here to see people who are so far away from God. Come to him through the power of the Holy Spirit, exemplified and manifested through us. I had this realization sitting on that boat last year. I can't do everything. I can't be everything to everybody. Not everybody's going to like me. Maybe not all of you in here like me. That's okay. But you like somebody else enough to be here. I can't go to every hospital visit. I can't bear the burden of every single one of your pain and issues and suffering in your life. I can't take upon myself the responsibility of the eternity of every single person in this room and in our city. I can't counsel every issue. Number one, I'm not a good counselor. Just ask my wife. I'm a problem solver. You tell me your problem within 30 seconds, I got a solution. It may not be right, but it's a solution. I'm not good at listening to a problem be talked about for hours. I got to interject i got to help you and then go on to the next person. I'm not gifted with counseling. Does that mean I will never meet with anybody? Not at all. But God hasn't given me that gift, but he's put people in our church who has that gift. He's put people in our church who have a passion and a desire to go visit individuals who are in the hospital and who are at home and make a connection with them. God has gifted each and every one of us to do something so amazing in his kingdom that the leadership is incapable and really ineffective at reaching a city all above all by themselves. We can't do it. There's, there's no unity in that. If the body of Christ isn't being built up, isn't being equipped, we can't execute and we can't do what God called us to do. Can't do it. So we are built up. We grow in this understanding and the unity of our faith and our knowledge that we have in Jesus. And the last thing is, is that some translations say we gain the fullness of Christ or we're being perfected in Christ. That we become more like him. The more we are equipped to do what he's called us to do, the more we become like Jesus. I think the more that we become like Jesus, the more we do what Jesus would do. The more we act like him. 
the more we talk like him, the more we treat people like he would treat people. And we saw the way that he treated people when he was on the earth. He, did never, he never compromised in the face of someone who was doing wrong, but he had an intense amount of compassion for them and love for them. The woman caught in the act of adultery, in the act. She's a home wrecker, right? She's a, not a good woman thrown at his feet, and he doesn't reject her. But he kneels down in the dirt with her and, and begins to talk with her. And he says, go and sin no more. Don't do this any longer. He, he welcomes her. He loves her. But he challenges her. Don't, don't, don't live this way anymore. This isn't beneficial for you. He saved her life. The law said she was to be killed, right? She's to be stoned. He just asks all the religious people of the day, you know, if you guys don't have any sin, go right ahead, throw a rock. But if you do, maybe you need to consider. The woman that he ran into at the well, who obviously had been married many times before, he talks with her. And he says, hey, go, go and sin no more. He tells her about her life, but she's changed and transformed. He's not with a bullhorn, screaming at her, yelling at her, telling her how much she's destroying her city and how much of a bad influence she is. He just says, he asks, do you have a, do you have a husband? She says, no. And he's like, you're right. You don't have one. You've got a bunch. And the man you're with now, he's not even your husband. She's like, yeah, you're right, but you know. Tries to change the subject. And Jesus just says, hey, I'm, I, I have water that you've never, you've never heard of before. I've got, I've got so much in me that you'll never thirst for approval and, and appreciation and acceptance from a man again. I've got it all in me. And the countless other stories of him impacting people who don't believe in him, who are living lives that we know, we know are wrong, but yet he's, he confronts it in this way that is so full of grace and so full of love. He never once says, man, you, you just got to change, and then I'll come back to you. Why don't you hit me up while I'm on this other road? Change, and then come back to me. No, he just says, hey, I, I can change you right now. I got everything that you need. Are you ready? Or, or he, he just like forgave people without them asking. The man that was put down through the roof, the paralytic, he says, hey, your sins are forgiven. The man didn't ask for that. He just wanted to walk. Then he healed his legs. Your sins are forgiven. I mean, the character and the posture of Jesus in the face of a world that is broken and hopeless was, I've come here to save. I've come here to give my life for these people. And as the church of Jesus Christ, that has to be our same posture. Do we need to stand up for what we believe in? 100%. Not, I'm not saying any of that, but what is our posture towards the world today? What is, our, what is our attitude towards what we're going to do when we walk out of here today? What have we been thinking over the past few weeks and months as things have been crazy? Are we getting so sick and tired of, of the world out there that we're like, come on, Jesus, just take me home? I mean, I want to go to heaven as much as the next person, but... That's up to him. That's his category. It's not mine. I don't know when that's going to be. I have no idea. In fact, the Bible tells me I don't know. So I've got to stop trying to figure it out. No man knows the hour. I don't know. But I can't live my life, and we can't live our lives, just wanting to get out of here. It's not wrong to not want to be here. But our lives have to be lived with this attitude of, while I'm here, I'm going to give all I have. 
I'm going to do all I can, and I'm going to be all that I can be to see this world saved. Because the moment that we believed is the moment that we stepped out of the stands and onto the field to play. We stopped being a spectator, and we became a participant. And you don't have a choice to spectate. You can't. Now, I'm not saying that you need to be a preacher. I'm not saying that God has called you to be one of these five things. All I'm saying is that God has positioned you where you're at. He's given you uh, influence and abilities and talents with the people that are around you that you can affect them with Jesus. A couple days ago, Randall and I went down to meet with a missionary whose name is Jay Covert, works in East St. Louis. Been there 11 years. He's a former drug addict, drug dealer, went to... Uh, Teen Challenge, and then went to Master's Commission three years, then served four years out in Washington, D.C., and God told him to come to East St. Louis. I don't know if you know a lot about East St. Louis, but there's 15 housing projects in East St. Louis. It is, it is one of the most poor, stricken places in, in, in all of St. Louis in Illinois. I mean, they got nothing. Roads are horrible. School system's horrible. I mean, it's bad. Drugs and prostitutes everywhere. He's like, yeah. He said, God just, God just sent me here, man. I said, did you have a church or anything? Because I had nothing. God just sent me here. So I just bought this barbecue cooker. And they said, we went out to crack houses and, and, and brothels. And we just started barbecuing and talking to people and praying with people. Today, they've got four churches in the area. Raised up pastors from that area. They've got a Spanish church. They've got two African-American churches. They're starting a, a Bosnian church. He's been there 11 years. He, he's got a relationship with these drug addicts. The city is where he's at. The area around it's starting to be cleaned up. And he's just started saying, you know what? I'm not going to hate these people. I'm not going to be so mad at these people. I'm just going to love these people. We're driving down the road and we see four guys selling drugs in the corner in open daylight. And he's like... He's talking to us, and he says, you know, what they're doing, obviously, it's horrible. It's destroying the city. He said, but you've got to have some compassion for them. He said, I bet you that at least three out of four of those guys didn't have a father growing up. I bet you all four of them probably didn't graduate from high school. I bet you two out of four of them are carrying a gun on them right now, but I bet you all four of them are so angry and so full of hate. He said, but I just see how much God loves those young men. Now, God's got a plan and a purpose for their life. I've just chosen not to be upset, but just to have compassion. It's amazing what he's doing in East St. Louis. It was challenging to me being there and in the midst of kind of thinking through this message of equipping. He has started to equip. He himself has executed and now beginning to equip people to change that city. So Seth can make his way back. You know what today is? other than June 28th. Today marks the year that Lauren and I became the pastors of this church. Actually, it was June 29th. Sunday, June 29th. We came back from Guatemala, preached. The church had a vote. We became the pastors. It's been an entire year. That went by fast, didn't it? I still got all my hair. None of it's gray. And I lost a little weight. Good stuff. But it's been a year. A year already. And you know what's the most amazing thing about that year? Everybody says, when you go through a transition... You're going to lose 20% of your people, and you're going to lose 20% of your income off the top. You know what? We didn't see any of that. We didn't experience any of that. There are two things that I look at above anything else. that say, are we being successful? Are we reaching our city? Guess what? We do look at the money every month, but I don't look at the money as much as the two other things. I don't look at how many people are in the seats, and believe me, I like to see people in seats. I heard one pastor say there's only two kinds of people that love a full room, politicians and preachers. 
So I like a full room, but here's two measures. I said, I'm going to look at the number of salvations. I'm going to look at the number of baptisms that we're doing. In one year, from this date to last date, I had Randall get me some numbers. In that year, we saw 122 salvations. We saw 56 baptisms. 122 salvations, that number was up 750%. If you're like me, you're like, I didn't even know there was a number great. Yeah, celebrate that. Baptisms were up 350%. Incredible. What's that tell me? That tells me that 32 years of Ed Sherrill being here was equipping. Was equipping so that we could take the torch and continue to execute. And continue to execute. There's one thing that Pastor Ed said through the whole time was the best days of FCC are yet to come. He, he equipped us to execute. But I, I begin to think about that number, and as beautiful as it is, salvations, baptisms, it's wonderful. I'm not content. I'm not like, all right, that's good, man. We can, we can kind of take a break. We can sit down. We can just stop equipping. I look at that, and I think, oh, we need people. We need more people to come and begin to execute because that's 122 people that now need to be discipled, right? They need to know what their next steps are. That's 122 people that need to start being equipped. We got 56 people that took the next step into baptism. That's only roughly half of the number of people that got saved. We got, we got more people that need to be equipped, more people that need to find out what their gifts and what their talents are in this world. They, 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 need, they need to know. And I begin to think about this passage of scripture again and say, hey, I'm an equipper. I'm an equipper. I'm an equipper. It's easier for me to do. Uh, my natural inclination is to see you saved, then I'll be the one to disciple you. I'll be the one to baptize you. I'll be the one to do all. I can't do it. That's not my job. I need all of you. I mean, we, we're in this together. We're a team, right? This, this church, this is God's church, right, overall. But this is it's our church, too. God put us here. We got to take responsibility for what is in front of us. We got to keep going. I think about our city, and you know, every Sunday and Wednesday when we walk out of those doors to go to our car, there's a big, huge hill out there, kind of like a mountain, right? I didn't know this, but I heard that's called affectionately Meth Hill or Meth Mountain. Did you know that? You know how much drugs are cooked up in that hill back there? People shooting up death in their veins, dying. I mean, that's what it's called, Meth Hill. It's right in our backyard. We have to look at it every time we leave church. I just wanted to let all of you know we are going to be a church that equips and executes. And if you don't want to be equipped, if you don't want to be a participant, this may not be the church for you. Because we are going to do what God told us to do and go into all the world and preach the gospel because we have no other option. I am not interested in playing church. Clap. Sorry. I'm not interested in playing church. I'm not interested in just preaching a good sermon that makes people feel good. I'm not interested in just seeing a full room of people that come, but we don't execute. I'm not saying that you're doing that. I'm just saying as we go forward, we are going to execute. We are going to equip and execute. We're going to play the game. And regardless of what the government says, regardless of what anybody in a position of authority says, we're not going to be depressed. We're not going to be down. We're going to preach a message of hope. We're going to come in here excited and hopeful because we know who Jesus is. And no matter what happens on this earth, it does not change him. He's the anchor for our soul. We're going to build up this body. We're going to grow in the unity of our faith and our knowledge. And we're going to become more like him. That passage says the perfecting, to reach the perfection of Christ. One of the commentators said this. 
He said, to understand this word in the Greek, perfection, it's not an errorless perfection. He said, if you've ever watched a painter paint a scene, you might have thought to yourself, how does he know when to stop painting? How does he know when to stop putting brushstrokes on the sun and brushstrokes on the water and brushstrokes on the tree? How does he know when it's perfect? He said, that's this idea of perfection is that when you come together in the church and you begin to be equipped, it's as if God, the master painter, is putting the final brush strokes on your life and saying, that's it. That's enough. That's just how I created you to be, to do what you were called to do. I have equipped, meaning I've set right, put in place. I want to show you the video that we took of our last baptism. That was a couple about a month ago or so. I, want, I just want us to watch that before we close and then I'll, I'll come back and pray. That's how we're going to continue to help people move where they are to where God wants them to be. And I'll make a commitment to each and every one of you. I'm going to preach hope. I'm going to preach the gospel. If you see me getting depressed, if you see me getting down, you can say, Hey, Josh, you're being an Eeyore. Stop. Preach hope. That's what the world needs now. The world needs the message of Jesus. That's all I got. I know this wasn't the most put together, polished message that I could have preached, but I just, I'm just so convinced that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever should believe in him will not perish or have everlasting life. I'm just convinced that that's a reality and that's true and that has to be our posture towards the world. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? I pray for you. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for Jesus. Mm. He's so good. He's everything that we'll ever need. I ask you, Father, in this moment, may your heart for the world just rest upon us. May we for a moment feel the burden that you feel. May we not grow bitter and angry and resentful and hopeless in the face of the things that are going on, but may we grow compassionate. May we proceed from a posture of love and from hope and to realize that you've called us to reach those who are afflicted and helpless and addicted and broken 
because we've got the message of life, everlasting life on the inside of us. I thank you, Lord. That is, we've said over and over again that the best days of FCC are yet to come. I would just like to ask if anybody in this room that says, I want to meet Jesus today. I want to give my life to him. I need forgiveness. I need salvation. I recognize I got stuff in my life that's not right. I want to make a change today. I want to give my life to him. If that's you this morning, I'd love for you just to raise your hand because I'd like to pray for you. Thank you. Next question is this. You're here this morning. Just as a way to identify. You say, you know what, Josh? I'm dealing with some fear regarding what's going on. I'm dealing with some, some frustration and resentment, and I don't really know how to move forward. If that's you this morning, I'd love for you just to raise your hand because I want to just acknowledge. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Heavenly Father. You've seen those hands that went up, and we just prayed for it. But God, touch them today. Touch them today. Show them how big you are, how great you are, that you're still seated on the throne, that Jesus is at your right hand. And God, the earth is your footstool. You got it all taken care of. You are in control. Thank you, Jesus.